John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed Omnibus Addenda, Volume 18, Entry 1076.PS7208, Certificate Number 27531, The River of Doubt. This was an older entry, but yeah. we I got two interesting postscripts brought to my attention yeah, this recently. This is back. Uh, Owen, who, by the way says it was his postcards we read in the Mobile Jubilee show. We just couldn't read his oh. writing, so belatedly. Sorry about that. Hello, friend. Oh, it was a nativity card from Rwanda. I remember that. Yeah, this show seems like a long time ago, but it really was It was in the year 2021. I guess we probably recorded it a little earlier. Um, Owen uh, pointed out something I didn't know, which was that in 1992, Teddy Roosevelt's great-grandson, Tweed, reenacted the River of Doubt expedition. I didn't know that either. No. I'm reading an article about it, which is kind of crazy. Except this time he just slept in Walmart parking lots the whole way? No, he he was still uh, facing rattlesnakes and piranhas up the Roosevelt River. This was a National Wildlife Federation funded expedition, and he's he's now the head of the Theodore Roosevelt Association, so he's, you know, he's coasting. Sure, it helps to be named Tweed Roosevelt. <laughs> Tweed? Yeah. Have you ever known a Tweed? His no, but you know, the wasps are crazy <laughs> about their names. His dad is Archibald Roosevelt, who was CIA. So Tweed grew up in Tehran, Beirut, and Istanbul. Just overthrowing governments. This is the family, the family way. Yeah, shooting elephants and uh, overthrowing governments. You know, he never met his great grandpa. Teddy died two decades before he was born, but it's obviously a big part of his legacy. And he, you know, reenacted this. Uh, so he was. Was he this journey in ninety two? Is he the descendant of Kermit? No, uh, I don't believe. No. Archibald is not Kermit's son, I think. Uh, so it looks like, I don't know who his grandfather is. I mean, it is interesting that there were, that Archibald and Kermit, there were two third generation Roosevelts 
who were both CIA. Is it, though? (laughs) Archibald Roosevelt... Oh, is the son of Archibald Roosevelt. Okay. That's how it works in their family. It makes sense, I guess. But he's got a kind of crazy story of going down the River of Doubt in 1992. And, uh, you know, he has a guide who knows about all the local legends about Teddy. And he says, ah, this is a secret spot here. According to local legend, that's where Teddy and his crew buried a jeweled statue. And Tweed thinks to himself, oh, no, that's not true. That's where they buried Jose, one of our guides who one of the other expedition members murdered for stealing food. We talked about that in the episode. So they buried this guy, and then in local legend, it turns into like an archaeological find. But really, he's like, no, that's where they put it. (laughs) So I I like that it's gotten cleaned up over time. Yeah, jeweled statue. Although what it suggests is somebody's going to come along and dig it up. Do you think so? Yeah, exactly. And find Jose's skull. Do you think... Teddy Roosevelt's great-great-grandson. I mean, every 30 years, is somebody new going to go down this river? What if you and I did it? That would throw the whole thing into a tizzy. Then the next Roosevelt would have to, would feel like, well, it's kind of, it's like opened up now. I don't want to force our rel- our descendants to do it. You know? Oh, good point. You're, if Teddy had thought that way. I wonder if any of my descendants are ever going to walk across Europe. <laughs> <laughs> or be on Jeopardy, am I right? We also heard from Jeffrey because... Jeffrey spelled Joffrey or Jeffrey spelled Jeffrey? Jeffrey with one F. No, Jeffrey spelled the normal way with a J. You know, we did two separate shows on Kermit Roosevelt. Right. Mostly by accident. Right. Jeffrey pointed out that Kermit Roosevelt III, who also exists, has not been the subject of an omnibus entry, but he was in the news this week. He's a... uh, He's still extant? Yes, he's still around. In fact, he looks youngish. He's oh. 49. Wow, he's younger than me. He's Kermit t- Roosevelt three. Yeah, you guys could hang out. He's a legal scholar who clerked for David Souter, and he was in the news this week because he is w- one of the members named to the presidential commission that Biden just formed to uh, at least give lip service to the idea of um, Supreme Court reform, or, he, or he, whatever you call it. He looks like a member of Coldplay. <laughs> Do you trust the future of the Supreme Court to a guy who looks like a member of Coldplay? Author, lawyer, legal scholar, law professor at University of Pennsylvania. See, it's situations like this where I just feel like I I haven't done enough in this life. Oh, but this committee's huge. Oh, so he's just one of a thousand people on a committee. Oh, I feel much better. Like 30 people. And, and you know, I'm sure having the name Roosevelt... Is, is what got him through law school? It's probably not hurting, yeah. you know, to get him on this presidential commission. Um, is it a blue ribbon commission? What do you think that means? Blue ribbon commission. Like they have the biggest hog at the fair? A blue ribbon commission. What does it mean? Yeah, it means, uh, it means it's been smoked and cured. <laughs> yeah, so he's, if you can be, he's 135th or so of this blue ribbon commission. And maybe that means he's a candidate for his own... Omnibus entry at some point. Maybe we have to do a show about every generation of Kermit Roosevelt's. Oh, he wrote a novel, and um, it got reviewed by Alan Dershowitz. Is it a legal thriller? Uh, probably. Oh, uh, no. Oh, yeah, he's written two novels. 
It was a Christian Science Monitor best book of the year, so that's kind of interesting. His second novel, Allegiance, is about U.S. national security policy during World War II, in other words, Japanese internment. And CIA. I would assume. Oh, we may have talked about this. I have some vague memory that his internment book came up. There was even a TV pilot based on his first book, starring Joshua Jackson, Frank Langella, and Kevin Pollack, but it never went to series. I think if you are named, uh, if you're named Kermit Roosevelt, you're going to get your book published. You're going to get your pilot made. Life's just easier if you're if you're a Kermit Roosevelt. Yeah. The third. Entry 484.EZ4030. Certificate number 30320. Flying Through the Gateway Arch. This is another older episode, but uh, Lou got in touch to mention that we had not, we had avoided one of the um, most famous, but also most disturbing aerial mishaps involving the St. Louis Arch in 1980. Uh, you know, I think multiple people have uh, have parachuted from the arch more recently with permission. But uh, on uh, in November of 1980, a parachutist was just trying to. I was in seventh grade, by the way. Do you remember? You probably remember this then. Yeah. Your class all watched live <laughs> as this skydiver tried to. Um, do what a few skydivers have done before and just kind of drop between the legs of the arch and land in the plaza. He fell out of an airplane. He's not jumping yes, he's off not, he's of not the... a, There have been base jumpers from the arch, I think, since then. Uh-huh. But this guy was just going to jump from a plane and see if he could land in the arch. Unfortunately, he landed on top of the arch oh, dear. with his parasail. And then a gust of wind... You know, so he's on top of the arch. A gust of wind pulls him sideways. He can't get his reserve chute down, and he slid down Whoa. the whole north leg of the arch, and uh, in a landing fatally Ooh. at the bottom of it. And apparently, his wife—this is his name was Kenneth Swires—and apparently, his wife Millie was catching the whole thing on tape. So she was like oh, his no. uh, his camera person. Uh, but like what aim to jump out of a plane and actually hit the top of the arch? It can't be that wide. See, this this reminds me of a story that I didn't tell during the episode. But um, years ago, the Long Winters on one of our very first tours, we played a bar in St. Louis called Frederick's Music Lounge. And Frederick's Music Lounge was actually a club that was inside a house. It was inside the basically the living room of a house, like a regular house in a neighborhood that it kind of had a little addition put on it. It was not a big club and it was owned and operated by a man named Fred Friction. His real name was something else, but Fred Friction was his gnome de guerre. And uh, Fred Friction, it was an early tour. Probably gnome de amour, right? Gnome de amour. We didn't uh, we didn't bring a ton of people into the show. It wasn't a sold out show by any means. But Fred Friction was there, and he really dug the band, and uh, he bought our CD. It was very complimentary. But he told a story about a time very recently, kind of right before. Well, it it didn't make sense because he'd he'd um. Well, no, wait a minute. The he, uh, Frederick's Music Lounge had. He'd only recently taken it over. He was telling a story about how uh, during a period earlier, he went out looking for a job 
and he uh, he'd walked around St. Louis. He tried, you know, he put in his submission for submitted his application in a couple different places. Nobody was hiring, and uh, he got he got kind of tired of of looking for a job, and he went down to the river and he took his shirt off and laid down on the bank of the river and uh, you know had a beer or two or three in the mid afternoon, and uh, he fell asleep. And then he said in his story that a group of tourists in a bus had pulled over on the side of the road because they were afraid he'd fallen out of an airplane. And the punchline of his story was, I didn't fall out of an airplane. I'm looking for a goddamn job. (laughs) And he told this story with such enthusiasm that that became one of the catchphrases in the van on tour it just, you know, it would come up as the answer if somebody had a question. If so, you know, for many, many years, we would say, I didn't just fall out of an airplane. I'm looking for a goddamn job. Have you ever thought of going skydiving just so you can say, I'm not looking for a job. I just fell out of an airplane. It's a pretty good line. I, you know, and I think, I think Frederick's Music Lounge isn't open anymore. I don't know whatever happened to Fred Friction. The story didn't really make a ton of sense at the time, but it was told in the drunken after show way. Where it just felt like I like how convinced he is that that's a good line. This is the greatest <laughs> anecdote any of us have ever heard. So maybe that's connected. Maybe the 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 impact of that story is different in St. Louis because it's plausible you'd walk along and and the person would have actually fallen out of an airplane. Well, speaking of impact, I mean this Kenneth Swires guy could have actually used more friction. Right. Ironically, maybe he should have changed his name. You know, there was somebody that jumped out of the Columbia Tower a, a dozen years ago, uh, base jumping. They threw their parachute out and caught wind, you know. Yeah. And then a gust of wind blew them back into the building, and they slammed into the building and then bounced off and then slammed into it again. And the entire way down the Columbia Tower, Ow. they just kept Ow. slamming it back into the building. I think they were seriously injured, if not killed. I really don't think it's a great idea. Base jumping yeah. in general? They just feel cool because it's like an illicit thrill because nobody wants them jumping off a bridge. But there's a good reason why nobody wants you jumping off that bridge, sir. Back when I was on 4chan quite a bit, there was a video of three people in those flying suits. Those Wiley Coyote ones? Yeah, that were flying like very close to a to a large bridge and one of them misjudged and hit the bridge. It was a pretty terrible... Fortune's full of stuff like that. I don't recommend anybody go there. You're doing a good job advertising people away from it. Stay away, unless you want to see videos of people getting killed. Entry 1136.PS1848. Certificate number 26161. Sergeant Stubby. In this tale of the heroic dog, you mentioned Balto. I mean, you'll, you'll mention Balto at the drop of a hat. I will. Give me any chance. But we heard from Ian, who is um, maybe a bit of a Balto truther. <laughs> a descendant of Balto? <laughs> he, he is tired of Balto getting all the credit when actually Togo is the real hero. Yes. Are you aware of the Balto-Togo Yes, I've, I've heard controversy? all the Balto-Togo controversy, but I didn't want to wade in. I just went with the conventional anecdote. Didn't want to get in on the whole. Europe, you wanted to please the people yeah. who who know and love Balto. I'm just talking to the. To, I'm a generalist here. I'm not. I'm not gonna. If I, you don't if, need to have a hot take. If on it was an episode on Balto, 
Yeah, I would have gotten into the controversy. Well, maybe we should have an episode on on Togo then. Because as you no doubt know, Balto is kind of overhyped. He only ran the last 53 miles of the of the diphtheria run. Yeah, but that's the thing. I mean, it's the if you're doing a if you're doing a Olympic oh, he baton was the, race. Because he was the closer. It's the one, yeah, it's the guy that gets gets you over. Dog food is for closers only. Whereas Togo ran the longest leg, 91 miles. He ran the most difficult leg, and he had to run 261 total miles in three days. Yeah. Togo's a champ, but, I mean, you only you only get one hero. When, what are you going to do? The one that crosses the finish line or some rando in the middle? Maybe the problem is the name. Balto just sounds better than better. Togo. Togo. It's, uh, it seems like it's analogous to Paul Revere, who gets all the credit, even though he was the, he's the one who got pulled over. Right. It was like it was Revere got arrested, right? It was it was his It was Jim Frankincense that uh, that did most of the ride. Fres- uh, Frankincense and Murr. <laughs> no, uh, Prescott and Dawes, I think, are the other two, but they actually got through to every Middlesex uh uh village and farm. But just like in the case of Balto, you know, Longfellow remembers Paul Revere and Balto must have just had a a better Press agent. Longfellow might have owed the Revere family a little bit of cash for a set of steak knives or something, and this was payback. I think it's just because nothing rhymes with Prescott or Dawes. Right. Listen, my child, and you shall plots at the midnight ride of William Dots. Entry 1363.jb2602. Certificate number 30080. The Underarm Bowling Incident. Thought we'd get more email about this one. We have a lot of listeners in Australia and New Zealand, and this surely got them all excited. They were either amused or appalled that we were uh, kind of taking this layperson's view of cricket. I did. We did get at least one letter from somebody who who felt like we'd done a fairly good job of sounding like dummies about cricket. It was yeah. It was easy to do. There was lively Facebook commentary. Oh. Um, which was kind of evenly split between, I love cricket, and it was so flattering to, uh, you know, you, you guys were mostly got it right, to uh, this was, a, this was uh, this is the end of dog racing, basically. This, right. is, this another, is terrible. Another incomprehensible episode. Or, or even it was a, Oh, that we did a terrible job. Yes, there was a uh, national uh, slur or uh, Yeah, or you know, sports people. But we didn't actually get too many... Uh, uh, substantive correction. I mean, one very embarrassing thing is just by misreading my own notes, I said balls instead of bales at bales. one point. Yeah, I guess the the a bale is the name for the little cross peg. rod that sits the peg that sits on top of the wicket. Um, but uh, I, I read at least one account that said that just confirmed like you have no idea what a big deal this is. In Australia and New Zealand, like it's still what that incident? Yeah, it's yeah. still really, really. I think recently it came up in uh, you know in some kind of squabble between the two countries. You know, footage of it ran again, and a listener named Brian wrote in. To Classic s- Australian name. I don't know if Brian's Australian or not, but he said, uh, "Oh, he is Australian, but now lives in Texas." But talking about the geopolitical angle of cricket, he says he was working in Pakistan during the late 90s, during a time of heightened Indo-Pakistani tension, as there often is. 
and uh, over Kashmir. And the Indian cricket team came through and did kind of a goodwill tour of Pakistan and played an international match and everything, you know, went off without any kind of clash or violence. And it was really kind of a hands across the sea, you know, United Nations, we can, you know, international sport can conquer all kind of a feel good moment for (laughs) India and Pakistan. Uh, Christmas soccer in no no man's land. Exactly. In the no man's land in Kashmir. Uh, We heard from Susan, who is also Australian and very angry about the Australian episode of The Simpsons, which I said was the source of all our um, knowledge about Australia, which is funny to an American, but maybe not so funny to an Australian. She sent us a link to a video that I really enjoyed called How Cricket Looks for Most People. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, there, this was kind of the problem with the episode is that we were explaining cricket to Americans. So we were trying to uh, explain it by analogy with baseball, which is a crazy way to explain cricket to people from the Commonwealth. Although I would love to listen to two, uh, to like two New Zealanders explain American baseball. Sure. I'd buy, I'd buy that podcast. How cricket looks for most people, I don't know where this comedy sketch came from, but it's it's really kind of a hilarious deadpan thing where uh, just a, a bunch of guys in white crewneck sweaters walk around on a grassy pitch kind of doing incomprehensible things with hoops and uh, paddles, and there's a chess set, and there's these hushed announcers kind of just saying gibberish about what's happening in the game. And uh, It's how cricket looks to what's the... How cricket looks for most people. Oh. Just, you know, these... Guys in sweaters running around doing just incomprehensible things. Money Python Inscrutable things. Yeah, it's a, it's a, whatever the Australian version of, of Monty Python is. I think it's Monty Python. We also, I, so I encourage you to check out that sketch if you're a, if you don't believe that cr- cricket is inscrutable. Uh, Brett sent us an interesting note about, I think one of one of the things we were discussing in that show was whether or not European sports like football, association football and cricket have less patience with rule stretching. Oh. Whereas in American sports, you know, Yankee ingenuity, finding loopholes in the rules is... Sure, you're meant to... Allowed, if not encouraged. Do the thing where you where you pretend to throw the baseball to second base. Hidden and ball it, trick. Yeah, that's all funny. Or even just using up the clock at the end of a football game. There's lots of things that right. seem like they're clever strategies in American sports where, where the soccer analogy just makes announcers shake their heads and you know the cricket analogy almost caused a war in this case but uh brett points out that that's not actually true of formula one you know one of the most popular and successful european sports where how figuring out how to make a car faster without violating the letter of any rule is is just a super important part of the dna of of car racing right they they drill out all the they drill holes in the frame or whatever they do, you know. They He has a story just like that. Uh, I guess originally um, when racing teams were first building more aerodynamic cars, they would actually add movable wings that would let them, uh, that would have more downforce going around corners. But then, you could, you know, you don't want downforce on the straightaway, so they would uh, flatten the wing when they, when the, they were done on the corner. Um, and the, that became illegal? Yes, so the rules were changed to ban those. So... Uh, different in 2010, different teams tried to figure out workarounds to get the same uh, effect without 
violating this new clause against movable aerodynamic devices. So they actually would build ducts through the bodywork of the car that would give you the same aerodynamic force. And then by the driver kind of shifting a knee or something, he could block the hole, what was called the F-duct. Uh-huh. I don't know what that means. Much harder for someone for a referee to discern. Yeah, and you could see they always have cockpit cameras, so you could see what was going on. You know, the guy shoving his knee pad into some hole in the chassis just to change the aerodynamics of the car. And so people very quickly figured out what this edge was, and the other teams complained. But the Formula One governing body said, Hey, this is built into the car. It's not a movable aerodynamic device. If you want to try it, you can try it. And so many other uh, teams now have their own, have added their own ducks to their chassis. And you can still see drivers taking their hands off the wheel to do these crazy, um, ho- basically hole blocking <laughs> at different parts of a, of a curve or a straightaway, I guess. Formula One is absolutely a sport that I cannot understand. I mean, I don't understand NASCAR either, but I went to see the race in Monaco one time. And uh, it's crazy. You stand there in a huge crowd of people. The city is full of people. Yeah. And you hear this excruciatingly loud noise, and then a, then some cars go by, and you see them for a split second. <laughs> and then that's it. You stand there for another 45 minutes waiting for them to come back. It's nuts. Yeah, you don't, there's no good seat. No good seat. You're just standing there waiting to see a... You should watch it on TV, basically. Yeah, right. It's a sport that's better on TV. Uh, and finally... Uh, Andy wrote in, you know, we this was an episode about how uh, an, an underarm approach was kind of underhanded in the case of cricket. Literally. And he, but we did not mention kind of an American analog, which is underhand uh, free throw shooting. In the case oh. of the NBA, there have been cases of players that have shot free throws underhanded. And in fact, Rick Barry, who was for a long time the most accurate free throw shooter in NBA history, shot all his free throws right hand. I think he's not anymore. Yeah, he's he's not even he's barely top ten. Um he threw him up like a like a seven year old? Yeah, just a granny shot. Huh. Underhand. And you would just have more control, I guess. You know, it's hard to argue with success. He was the best free throw shooter of of, you know, twenty years before or after him. But uh, you know, Players just kind of thought it looked wimpy. It's not very cool. To shoot that way. Right. And I guess there's a This American Life that covers Wilt Chamberlain, who was a terrible free throw shooter, but famously in his 100-point game, I guess made like 28 of 32 from the line, shooting underhand. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. But then he never went back. So it's kind of a case study of like peer pressure, how peer pressure affects decision-making and the different kinds of thresholds of you know how many people have to do a thing before it becomes allowable and you don't feel like a doofus. I mean, it's really relevant for mask wearing and vaccines and a lot of 2021 concerns as well. Yeah, there's that story in um, in the Sabermetrics movie about the pitcher that just pitched funny. Yes. And they didn't want to recruit him just because he looked funny. Yeah, I guess we didn't talk. Do did we even talk about submarine or EFIS pitchers? I don't even think we did. But yeah, there are anal- none of them are analogs to the rule bending aspect of it. Right, they're just strange. They have a strange form. Yeah, and uh, I'm kind of surprised that uh, I guess maybe underheaded free throw shooting is not going to come back now that you know Steph Curry and Steve Nash have proved that you can 
shoot better than Rick Barry overhand, but you know, you just have to be. But what if they were shooting underhand? Who knows what they could right. score? What if Steph Curry never missed a free throw? What if he, what if he was shooting 110% from the line? If he would just shoot underhanded, you never know. Change the game. Entry 172.HE0927. Certificate number 28349. The Cadaver Synod. This was the Pope who got dug up to face post posthumous charges mm-hmm. of, uh, of heresy and, uh, and whatnot. And I think you and I were joking about... Ought to happen to every Pope, I think. Really? You think dig in, them all in turn? Up. Like... Dig them all up now? Yeah, dig them up. Or dig them up one, from now on, dig them up one at a time a decade after they die? Uh, well, we got a lot of popes to dig up. We got a backlog. And try. That's all, because the trial's not going to be short. I mean, even though the defendant can't testify, I'm sure there are going to be a lot of... You want to have the due process. Yeah. I think there are going to be a lot of witnesses for the defense as well as the prosecution. Won't they be dead? It's going to take, well, I mean, they're, by proxy. I see. Scholars of, of medieval history. That's right. Uh, and, uh, you know, various, various papists. So it's going to take a while. It's a lot of backlog. And by that point in time, the popes that are dying these days, I mean, how long before you get to John Paul II? I know there are going to be people offended by this idea. That you want to dig up every pope. But Who would be offended by such you, a you know, that's delightful just, conceit? I like to skate the edge of propriety. Um, I guess we mentioned uh, something about how even saints decompose because it's true that uh, it's a great song lyric. Even saints decompose. Yeah, let me write that. That down. is pretty good because when they when they dug up uh, this particular pope, he was not in very good shape. But uh, Damien on Facebook uh, said, uh, "You are reckoning without Saint Cuthbert, the patron saint of Northumbria." Go uh, on. He was um, a seventh century saint, but when, according to the venerable Bede. When his tomb was opened 11 years after his death, his body was found to be uh, totally unspoiled. He looked as good as he did in life. Really? Uh, and Unreliable narrator, it sounds like to me. You, he's very venerable, the bead. You, well, don't, you think he's I'm... venerable but not reliable? He's not the reliable bead. I feel... <laughs> he's not no, the he's plausible not. bead. No, he's not. Uh, I don't know what embalming technology would have been like in uh, 7th century Britain. I mean, it might be a thing where he's up, uh, he's in some peat bog and and it's anaerobic environment. Yeah. But that's not going to keep his skin plump and rosy. Well, certainly witnesses, uh, this is obviously reported second or third hand. But oh, you didn't hear this from... from <laughs> I didn't hear this from Bede. I mean, even from, I don't think Bede could even have been there, but... Uh, but it was taken as evidence of his saintliness, you know, sure, that, that if you're a really good person, your body won't rot. When you're looking for saintliness, I, you find it where you can. Do you think that's true of people in life as well, that uh, people who uh, age better are, uh, are are just more virtuous souls? I do feel like George Clooney is very virtuous, and he's aging quite well. Brad Pitt, too. Except Brad Pitt, uh, uh, Angelina says he hit one of their kids on a private jet. What? Oh, I didn't read that. Yeah, I'm not I'm not consuming the news these days. Also, Angelina Jolie isn't called the reliable Jolie. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I'm trying to think of somebody who is aging very well despite being evil or who is aging terribly despite being amazing. Mother Teresa never looked that great. Barbara Bush 
maybe was a nice lady, but she didn't. She she wasn't like yeah, but she was of that generation of people that just always looked as soon as they graduated from college, they looked like they were in their fifties. Right. I saw Na- this, uh, Nancy uh, Reagan kept a somewhat youthful, albeit skeletal appearance. Brittle. Yeah, un- unto her late age. There doesn't seem. To, I don't think there is a Dorian Gray effect where you can see. I mean, I guess what's the guy that owns the Clippers? Donald, whatever his name is. Don't know. Uh, he he just looked like a a terrible cadaver, and so did Prince Philip. Donald Trump looks the same. I mean... He's lost a little weight lately, but he's, he doesn't look good. I haven't seen him lately. Oh, he looks fantastic. No, he's he's not going to look good, but he didn't look good when he was in his 50s. I'm trying to think... You know, I feel like I'm fairly virtuous, and I have gone really gray in the last five years, and uh, I think a lot of my... The, you know, the appeal of me as a, as a youngish, middle-aged guy has now switched around and in my Hawaiian shirts walking down the street, you could be forgiven for thinking I was 65 years old and on my way home to work on my hot rod. I think that when I put on a t-shirt now, I'm like, I don't know if I can wear a t-shirt anymore. I mean, it's, it's not that I don't fit them or whatever. You it's just, just like, why is this middle-aged guy wearing a t-shirt? What a loser. But you and I both have pure hearts. Why are the ravages of time af- uh, affecting us so strong? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I say. Yeah. We also had two corrections from, uh, well, for Mike points out that uh, I said St. Stephen replaced uh, Judas Iscariot as one of the 12, and that is, in fact, not correct. I, I should have that. known better. You, I, you, you knew. Yeah, I just held my tongue. You knew that it was uh, St. Benisma. Benisma. Dr. Rosenpenis. Matthias was actually oh, chosen by Lot to replace Judas. Stephen, Stephen was a... a you know, kind of a second-gen apostle, but he was one of these seven archdeacons that were later promoted. Was your corrector a uh, a novice Jesuit? Probably. I yeah. just assume all our email comes from Jesuits. Jesuits of one kind or another. Yeah, except for the Dominican. We do have one listener who's a Dominican priest, but not a or friar. Oh, fact. I thought you meant like he's from the Dominican Republic. No, I no, thought he was although, like, oh yeah, that's it. <laughs> we do have Dominican Republic listeners too. In fact, everyone listening to the show right now from the Dominican Republic, please write us at. The Omnibus Project at gmail.com. What do you want them to say? Hola. <laughs> it's funny because there's a country called, people from the Dominican Republic are called Dominicans. Yes. That's what I've always thought. But there's a country called Dominica also. Right. And what are they called? Dominicanians. Dominican Republicans? Hmm. I don't know. I'm talking about a Dominican, a member of the Dominican order. Yes. I yes. got gotcha. you. Right. I got gotcha. you. We also heard from a different Mike. Boy, the cadaver synod really, really brought him out, didn't it? We mentioned uh, Conan the Barbarian for some reason. Why were we talking about Conan the Barbarian fighting James Earl Jones and, and Wilt Chamberlain? I just thought it was problematic that he was always beating up on uh, on these African-American heroes of their generation. Uh, I don't remember. I what, don't but Was it because we, we called him Conan instead of Conan? I don't know. I got into a lot of trouble uh, with that at one point recently. Because it's Conan O'Brien, but Conan the Barbarian. Right. Uh, Mike, who's a bit of an expert on the pulp authors of the 30s, says, yes, Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan, is, is, um, was not any— H. Will Chamberlain? Was not— <laughs> Because he wouldn't shoot his free throws right. No, he was not any stranger to— cliches of Pulp Fiction about savages and the Dark Continent and so forth. You know, I guess he loved Irish and Celtic myth. 
So all of his heroes, like just like Tolkien, all of his heroes are are from European myth, but they're fighting against um, darker, complected people from dusty, dusky climes, I right. guess. Uh, so he's not quite all the way over to H.P. Lovecraft on the pulp racist spectrum, but yes. But the but the diversity is expressed uh, by including redheads every once in a while. Yeah, and the diversity is expressed campaign. by giving him villains of color to right. to whack apart with. His sword, I guess. Does I, Conan have a sword? He does. I have to say, James Earl Jones in the Conan movie is a pretty formidable adversary. Oh, I'm cheering for him the, yeah, whole, the he, whole way. He's not uh, He's not just some guy that's going to, he's not a patsy that's going to lay down for Conan. Or Conan, even. Or Conan. Conan, as we say. That's the canonical pronunciation. Oh, that was a Ken Jennings joke. Why would I have said that? Woo! I don't even oh, know. Why am no. I even here? Oh, no. I don't have to be on this show Stop anymore. Stop me before I pun again. Entry 292.ZP0110. That's Zulu. Uh, P? Uh, uh, Papa. There you Zulu, go. Zulu Papa 0110. Certificate number 34659. The Crash at Crush. I think Zulu Papa sounds like the bad guy in a Conan movie. I know, Zulu Papa. Finally, a name that doesn't sound fake. I got uh, corrected twice, and rightly so. Well, three times, actually. How many of these are actually mistakes? Three times a lady. I was corrected three times a lady here. I mean, one, this is just, again, me reading my own writing wrong. I set the the, uh, locomotive crash of Crush, Texas in... West Texas, when in fact it was located in West, comma, Texas. Oh, what? Really? A city <laughs> named West Texas. That's not fair, and it's in Eastern Texas. It, it's near Waco, yes. Wow. So but I've never been to Waco, but I guess between Dallas and Austin. Between right? Dallas and Austin. Yeah. Yeah. You've been to Waco? I have. You were a cult member there. One time I pulled over uh, with, a, with my band at a, at a roadside hotel in Waco, Texas. And we went in and we were like, can we have, uh, you know, two rooms with two queen beds? That was how we did it. One guy always slept in the van and then each of the rest of us got our own queen. And the guy at the counter said, I don't have two rooms with two queen beds, but I do have one room with three queen beds. (laughs) And in all of the years, I had never... Who has a three queen bed at motel room? I had never heard of such a thing. So we were like, of course, absolutely we want the room with three queen beds. And we went up, and sure enough, it was a triangular-shaped room, enormous room, three queen beds. You guys were not in the earthly dimension anymore. The second you entered that triangular room. And it just felt like, okay, Waco, like, yeah, what else have you got? Uh, So we were were pretty excited to... To be there, and it was yeah, it was the it was the night of our lives. I mean, I should have known better because I mentioned Waco, and I knew right Waco's not out west, West Texas. But but that's a bad that's a that's a easy fool. To this day, people will say I'm from West comma Texas. They have to pronounce the comma right because West Texas is such a region. Right. Even though, why is West Texas a region? Oh, I guess it's because it makes so much money for everybody. I guess it's it's well, it's uh it's culturally distinct from most of Texas, right? It's just because it's so yeah, southwesty, well, New Mexico-y. It smells, it smells bad. That's what you're going to say. <laughs> it smells, it's the smelliest part of Texas. It smells like raw oil, which, as you know, is a smelly smell. I always think that's bad for you. Like, I always assume I'm losing brain cells every time I gas up my car. Well, that's different. Like, raw oil, like raw crude from the ground smells like dead dinosaurs. 
It's a it's a, not a good smell. You have to be around it. I guess you have to, to process out all the dinosaur goop. It doesn't smell like tar. It smells like its own thing, which is like a kind of. It's just it's rotten. It's like swamps. If you took a swamp and buried it under the earth for twenty thousand years or a hundred thousand years, and then popped a cork and it all came pouring out, what is that going to smell like? Not great. Uh, well, I mean, we know from the unless the dinosaurs were saints, in which case right. they would still be in perfect condition. Right. Uh, David and Dave and Joseph both corrected me on one point. I, I had assumed all these years that the guys in the Bartles and James ads were actually Bartles and James. You're, you're not going to tell me that they were just actors. Not only are they not the real Bartles and James, there are no Bartles and James. Oh, come on. How did I not, how did I not know this? Orville Redenbacher isn't Orville Redenbacher? Is that what you're going to tell me? No, he's a genius of, of popcorn agronomy. He's the, he's probably some George Washington Carver type. Is Colonel? I know Colonel Sanders is a real Colonel. Yes, he revolutionized uh, chicken frying, right, and finger licking. Yes, but Bartles and James are just two Hollywood actors dressed as hayseeds. They were actors, but I don't think they were Hollywood actors. I think Bartles was the result of a talent search in Redmond, Oregon. Okay, so if you're, I don't know why that you would start your talent search in Redmond, East, Oregon. Eastern Oregon, <laughs> yeah, Redmond, Eastern, Oregon. And the other one was, uh, yeah, just, I think some other non-actor as well, just some general contractor that they found. Cause right. you know, you, that was the whole idea of those commercials is they were, they just had some weird affectless way of talking. Yeah. We want uh, a Wilford Brimley type, but with no mustache. There are no Bartles and James because those were uh, products of, of, uh, Gallo of Ernesto and oh. Julio Gallo. Who were Winery. like, we sell cheap wine, but we have this even cheaper wine. <laughs> well, maybe it's like the whitewashed version of them, you know, like it's was- it's uh, waspy names, Anglo names. Right. For Ernesto and Julio. Oh, but, but I guess the two, the, the Bartles and James characters were kind of based on the Gallo brothers, but just given weirder names. James yeah, with a Y. Right. They, uh, they, took, uh, they took the vowels off the ends. My third and worst mistake in that episode, you know, the two trains were crashed into each other at 50 miles an hour. And I said that would be, you know. A hundred mile an yeah, hour. imagining smashing into a wall at a hundred miles an hour. But somebody took issue with your math. My math. I mean, that's true if it comes to, if you're just thinking about the speed, the relative speed of the two surfaces hitting. But I kind of implied I was thinking of the force of the collision. And when you're talking force, you're talking kinetic energy. Yes. And kinetic energy is expressed as one half times the mass, times the velocity squared. Okay, so? So, crashing two trains into each other at 50 miles an hour is two times half the mass times 50 squared. Okay. Whereas crashing one thing into a wall is at 100 miles an hour is much worse because it's one half times the mass times 100 squared. I see. So, considerably more and it makes sense you know yeah. all the all the inertia is coming from one place i guess one one side of the collision so in fact it was completely survivable crash because it was uh it was only 50 squared speaking of slower crashes uh joseph also pointed out an art installation that i have never seen but i guess which is making the rounds called the Slow Inevitable Death of American Muscle. It's a Jonathan Shipper art installation where he places two uh, kind of muscle car-looking cars on a track, 
and crashes them inexorably into each other over a period of six days. Yeah. So as you sit and watch, they are moving so slowly that they appear to be standing still, like John Cage style. But eventually they collide. The track cannot be denied. Eventually they will they will collide. Their bumpers will start grinding into each other. Eventually they will kind of fold upward, you know, almost as if two cars would do if they were hitting head on at speed. But in this case, so slow you can't even tell. I wonder what the difference in the um, the ultimate shape yeah, of the exactly. two cars would be. Well, I mean, only one way to find out, which is to to do this very thing. slowly crash your car into your neighbor's car, but move it just a a millimeter a, an hour. Right. I uh, it looks like a you know these photos make it look plausibly like a real crash, but. The slow, inevitable death of American muscle kind of implies the subtext of the exhibit, which is that, you know, we are also watching some kind of slow motion catastrophe in our time. It's just moving a little too slowly for us to perceive and react all at once, but that doesn't mean the decline is not here. We are each uh, an American muscle car colliding slowly with our destiny. You and I? Yes, a a fellow person. You are my density. I mean... We, uh, in the same episode, we talked about how Crush Texas was just created out of nowhere for this event, much the same way that Coachella gets created out of nothing. And uh, Steve McGrath from, uh, you know, just five miles away from Coachella, was, he was listening to this episode as he watered his garden. And he was like, hey! <laughs> hey! Well, he pointed out something which I didn't know, which is, you know, the Coachella Festival, Arts Festival, is named for the whole valley. But it's not actually located in the town of Coachella, which is a real town there. And it's majority Mexican, right? Or majority uh, Hispanic town, like they speak Spanish there. Yes. Uh, the the festival is actually takes place with—it's like Woodstock. It takes place within Indio city limits. Right. Um, you know, five, but, five minutes further down the road is Coachella, and as you say, the whole thing is, uh, you know— a, Extremely Latino community, except my, for one, my, one week a year. My understanding is that that community is is fairly conservative, agricultural town, and they are not that thrilled with the festival being named after them. I wouldn't be surprised. I guess the Coachella Valley High School mascot is the Arab, hmm. in what was once a respectful nod to the original date palm settlers of the valley. Hmm. But which now seems a little weird in hindsight, especially if you look at a picture of the mascot, <laughs> which is which is everything you don't want it to be. All right. Uh, I guess Steve has been to the festival a few times because, you know, from the stage, bands routinely, you know, greet the crowd and the town of Coachella. He says he's only heard one band salute correctly salute Indio. It, oh. When when they hello Cleveland it up and was it uh, Paul got, McCartney you, and Wings? You got to guess it was not Paul McCartney and Wings. <laughs> uh, it has to be Bell and Sebastian. And you're pretty good. You're not you're not too far off there. It was uh, Pavement. Actually. Oh, aren't they smart? Stephen Malcolmus, smart, smart lad. He is smart. Uh, so he said hello India. Maybe just to be perverse and funny. I oh, would the imagine. mighty Arabs! Look at them, and the, and they're dressed like Emiratis. Yeah, the outfit is is what you'd expect. Yeah, you can kind of imagine them talking like Watto in the Phantom Menace. <laughs> so I don't know how long the uh, the uh, Coachella Arabs are for this world. Entry one zero three one dot mt two four one one certificate number three eight eight nine nine. 
Rasputin or Rasputin. Ra ra Rasputin. Mm-hmm. We got my favorite kind of correction on this episode. One that makes me look bad. Yes. Ah. <laughs> not just not just you getting corrected, but you getting corrected uh, by something that I actually knew at the time, but decided not to. Oh, not to call you on the 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 worm turns. That's right. We heard from uh, Bill. Uh, you, I think I mentioned something about the Christian scientist not accepting medical care. You made the mistake of name checking the Jehovah's Witnesses. Right. Bill is, is a, a Jehovah's Bill Witness. Bill is a witness, and he wants you to know that it is biblically permissible to accept medical treatment. Sure. Uh, I mean, Luke is a physician. Right. Uh, uh, he 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 cites Colossians four and Galatians. 4. Six in uh, in accepting almost any kind of medical treatment. The only problem is uh, Acts fifteen twenty is a much more they they take as a much more specific prohibition. Uh, Acts fifteen twenty reads in the NIV: Do is, not say the pledge of allegiance. Yeah. It's so weird. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Mm. Presumably a dietary warning, but they right. take it very seriously to uh, to prohibit blood transfusions. Oh, sure. Okay, I knew that. So that's the only thing that witnesses are absolutely uh, absolutely verboten. And you knew this at the time, but just let me uh, let me twist in the wind. I let you twist, and I let the Jehovah's Witnesses twist, because really, well, the, well, this show is not about giving good PR to the Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, Bill was was Johnny on the spot there, so I appreciate he was, the correction. And he appears to be a... Uh, uh, also a Rasputin scholar. A sincere fan of the show, and firsthand knows, you know, he, has, he actually has a kid with heart defects, and, you know, despite being a, a Jehovah's Witness, they had no problem with all the open-heart surgeries and spinal fusions for scoliosis and all the other procedures she needed, and now she's a, a healthy adult. Oh, wonderful. And uh, thank you for letting us know, Bill. We apologize for uh, for uh, exaggerating the theology of the Jehovah's Witnesses. We also heard from Jonathan. Have you ever been to St. Petersburg, Russia? No. I've Although been... I knew the I knew the um the what the deputy what, consul the deputy consul in St. Petersburg the, was a, the it, American consul uh, there Amer uh, the American consul the deputy De- the de- okay. uh consul was uh, uh was a good friend of my sister's from Stellar High school in Anchorage, Alaska. So you knew him back in the day. No, it's a her. His, sorry, you knew her back in the day. Oh, I got got there. Zing. I knew her. I can't operate on that boy. It's my son. Uh, I knew her when uh, she was in high school, and now she's like a, a very uh, high-ranking diplomat for the United States. Career diplomat, not appointed not one of these goofball diplomats. Goofball donors who is now the ambassador to... To Ecuador. No. I met the wife of the American ambassador to Finland one time, and he definitely was just a rich guy that had bought the job. Just some guy in Dockers golf clubs. Exactly. Bald guy, Dockers. But she was, uh, you know, she's a legit diplomat. Although the consulate got closed when the Russians were sanctioning us for some sanction that we sanctioned them for spying on us or interfering with democracy. So she got some lamer post? No, she really... Speaking of Finland, she actually speaks Finnish, and what she wants to be is the 
the ambassador to Finland. Look, I, we all want to be the ambassador to Finland, but it just can't happen for everybody. That's right. The, the bald guy was in the way. Uh, because I guess the ambassadorship of Finland is like a perk, whereas... Uh, yeah, I mean, you can see which world capitals you'd want to send your rich buddies to. They're all going to want to be the... They're all going to want to live in Tokyo or Brussels or Stockholm. Yeah, and so... And not so much exactly. Gaborone, Botswana. So uh, so I think she's... she uh, Once she got kicked out of St. Petersburg, she's like on some other... Some other track. Uh, she's she's at an embassy, some other place. I have long wanted to visit St. Petersburg. Me too. I saw that movie of the Hermitage where they do the whole thing in one camera move through the museum, and I was sold. Uh, we heard from Jonathan, who was there on a cruise. Okay. I guess he was lecturing on the cruise. He went, he goes to some pains to tell us he is not a cruise person. My uncle Junius lectured on cruises in the Baltics. I don't I, know if you ever went to St. Petersburg. I lecture on cruises, but I do it from a state university. I just lecture about cruises. I tell my class like not to go on them. I've literally lectured on a cruise. The, uh, you know, you can tour, Jonathan says, the Yosipov Palace, the site of Rasputin's murder, um, you have to book a tour through your cruise company and he, he was, I guess they were in port there for four days and he ran out of things to do. So he decided to do the Yusupov Palace tour because it's the cheapest. Thank you. Good tip, Jonathan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he said it was crowded because, you know, it's the cheapest option. So all the cruise passengers there, check it out. Um, but I guess the whole palace survived uh, the Soviet um, property confiscations because it had already been turned into a museum. So it still has all the lavish decor of the late Romanov era. Uh, it has its own private theater, but the Rasputin room has a bunch of mannequins acting out the poisoning. Oh. so you uh, Is it like the Chuck E. Cheese mannequins where <laughs> one of them's playing a banjo? See, these are still photos, so I can't <laughs> tell. It is very clear that one of these two guys at, at, at the dinner table, one of them looks like Jesse Thorne and the other one looks like um, Brahms, the evil boy doll from those horror movies. Hmm. So now we know who actually killed Rasputin. Jesse Thorne? Jesse Thorne and Brahms the boy. I don't doubt it. I, if they don't have an alibi. Uh, so Jonathan recommends checking out the room where the room where it happened, I guess. Hmm. All right. Next time you and I are both in St. Petersburg, you know, you and your family take exotic vacations. Not that exotic. Uh, so that would be pretty fun. I, I would love to. I don't know if, it, what, what is a cruise there even? What, you'd cruise up into the Baltic, I guess? It's one of those, it's not like a, I think it's like a riverboat cruise or something. It's a smaller ship. And you cruise, you, yeah, you go to... But it's just one of those ones where it's all a giant casino. You go to Riga, and then you go to Tallinn, and then you go to... Um, I may have told this story before, but I once took a ferry between Sweden and Finland, and the boat just goes as slow as possible in the hopes that you will gamble and drink and do karaoke and make terrible but profitable decisions for them. Uh for an additional hour. Like the, the boat literally goes like walking speeds. I once knew a guy that owned a, uh, one of those riverboat cruise ships that, that, uh, that did the Danube run and he named his boat Fitzcarraldo. And he was a very successful ship captain. And then he gave it all away to walk to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage. And he only made it as far as Arad, Romania. And he fell in love with a girl. 
And I think he still lives there to this day. Isn't Fitz, isn't the Fitzcarraldo a terrible name for a it's boat? It's a terrible if, name. If you want it to go anywhere on the water. And when he told me it was named the Fitzcarraldo, I was like, are you insane? And he was insane. And he freely admitted that he was. Uh, Richard on Facebook also pointed out, and this is good, I didn't know this, that uh, in 1932, MGM made a movie about the Rasputin murder called Rasputin and the Empress. Uh which has all the Barrymore siblings in it. Okay. Uh, and inaccurately claims that uh, Rasputin had actually raped Princess Natasha, which is what they renamed Princess Irina, the uh, the eldest child of the Grand Duke Alexander, you know, the only the only niece of, of Nicholas II. Unfortunately, she and... Is it her husband, Count Yusupov, I think, got out. And so they were still alive at the time this movie came out in 1932. Whoa. And uh, they sued for libel. And the jury watched the movie twice. <laughs> I guess they got TCM. <laughs> uh-huh. And agreed that the princess the had been collection. defamed. And they were awarded the equivalent of $2.4 million in, uh, I think, some British court. Right. And later, $20 million in an out-of-court settlement. And the movie disappeared for decades. And this is why, to this day, movies have that um, disclaimer at the beginning that says, all names, characters, and incidents portrayed in this production are fictitious, like any resemblance, blah, blah, blah. All that dates back to this one court case in 1932 about Rasputin. How could you make a movie about Rasputin and the... Romanovs, and then claim that it was all fictional. I mean, it's it's funny to me that 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 uh, disclaimer even holds. This is a work of fiction, right? Because they put it up, they put it in front of biopics now. You know, they'll put it in front of the Johnny Cash story and say all characters, blah blah blah. And I think now there is some adapted one that says except except when used for parodic purposes or you know something else protected by fair use. Well, everybody was really upset about the way the royal family was not everybody. Most people thought the way the royal family was represented in the crown was great. But Prince Charles I think didn't like it and some royal publicists. Well, they can't really sue though. Yeah, I suppose not. I mean, that's a that's a bad look. Yeah. But I think and I think that's I think the People who made the crown knew that going in, <laughs> but I, I did kind of remember having that uh, kind of voyeuristic thrill watching um, what was Peter Morgan's uh, The Queen, that Peter Morgan movie about the death of Diana with with Helen Mirren as, as yeah. Queen Elizabeth. I really kind of thought, you know, even though it's just all invented, I was really like, is this is this really what happened in the palace? You know, am I supposed to be am I supposed to be seeing this? These are right. living people, right? E. Oh, speaking of living people, by the way, I'm actually not going to say this. Never mind. Come on, say it. No. Why not? We heard it. it it's you were about a, to say it. It's an email I heard from an omnibus viewer, but I kind of want to repurpose it as a trivia question at some point. So oh, okay. I, so I don't want to use it. I don't want to give it away now. Okay, okay, good. Maybe it'll be in a future agenda after I after you after I steal this guy's work. Okay, good. Entry 747.PR0425. Certificate number 27012. Magic Eye. Now, you confessed on the Magic Eye show that you have never been able to see the Magic Eye. Never been able to do it. And I don't know if I would even say confess. Maybe you boasted that you've never been able to. You didn't seem too troubled. No, but I, I don't feel like it's a boast or, or a confession. It's just a statement of fact. And also, like a four-leaf clover, I feel somewhat like it's not real. 
You don't think uh, you don't think magic eye exists. I think it's just a it's a massive gaslight. All the people that claim to see dolphins are just goofing on us. It's a thing where I don't know what. I think you're right because what are the odds they're all dolphins? That's clearly a lie we've all been taught to say. I feel like it was a thing where like a bunch of people were watching Animaniacs and somebody busted in, you know, some Wizard of Oz busted in in the middle of the episode and said, hey, psst, here's the thing. When you get older, pretend that you can see dolphins in this painting. And then all the people that weren't watching Animaniacs, it's like if the moon landing is a conspiracy, think about how many hundreds and thousands of people needed to be read into the conspiracy in order to pull it off. None of them have talked. Well, Magic Eye would be worse. Surely hundreds of millions of people can do it. None of them are going to tell you that it's all a fake? That's the thing. Get get one of them drunk and see what see what they say. That's what I should do. Brett has tips. Oh, tips. On how to see it. Go on. But I feel like they're not that different than what I told you. Just cross your eyes or look at a point in the distance. Put the image at arm's length away from you. All right. Can you, can you bring one up on your screen? Should we do this in real time? Because it was such good audio before. Uh, everybody, this is the best radio. Uh, let's see here. Magic I mean, watching somebody try to figure eye. out Magic Eye would be would be electrifying enough. But what if you could only hear it? Well, does it work on a computer screen? Doesn't it have to be? All no, right. It'll work. It'll work. It'll work. Here's one on mental floss. And the title of the article is, Why Can't Some People See Magic Eye Pictures? I mean, they used to have them with two dots at the bottom. Do you remember these? And if you could get yeah. the dots to overlap, that would be the appropriate focus. Mental Floss really wants to show me an advertisement, and I keep trying to see the magic eye, and they keep trying to show me an advertisement. Okay. I, I have noticed that about... They should have the ads in magic eye form. All right, here we go. I've got a magic eye in front of me here. So is it about arm's length? I'm going to zoom in on it here. Uh, it appears to be arm's length. What do you mean it appears to be? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's more it's or less. arm's length. Yes. Now, what you want to do is look just over the top of your of your screen at something further away, like me, for example, waving at you here. So you want me? So you look at me just over the top of the screen. So I'm in focus. Hello. Now try to keep the eye, the position of your eyes fixed on me, the focal distance fixed on me, as you slowly move them down, like you're trying to peer through your laptop to my uh, torso right behind it. You do look kind of wall-eyed. Seems like you're doing it right. Nothing? I think for a brief moment I saw something that looked like a fish, maybe. Try again. Look at me. Now look look at your fish. Mm. No. Brett says, it can take time, but it worked like a charm for me. And while the images are indeed underwhelming, <laughs> the experience is delightful for a time. It can be both underwhelming and delightful. Mm, I see some squiggles. Were the squiggles always there, though? Yeah. They just look three-dimensional briefly. I mean, I couldn't do it. The, the first ones I saw had the two dots, like, and you kind of had to move them across like a mad fold and so they'd meet in the middle. And that worked for me, kind of locking them in place. I cannot see this dumb thing. That's what it should be called. <laughs> what if instead of Magic Eye, it was called, I cannot see this dumb thing? You know, I'm good at crossing my eyes. But this is the opposite of that. You need to uncross them. 
you're, you need to kind of splay your eyes out like a bass or a flounder. Uh, uh, no, no. Now I feel well. We're gonna tense. end. The, we're gonna end every addenda show with five <laughs> minutes of you trying to do this and failing. <laughs> this is gonna be like a recurring, a recurring segment. One of these days. And now it's time for what, what did you call it? I can't see this damn thing. Uh-huh. I, <laughs> I can't see this damn thing with Ken and John. Okay, here's how you do it this time. What if, yeah, what if, that's an idea yeah. for a podcast. Every show is just a different magic eye image. Yeah. You look at this pen over here. And I see it here. and you fail to see you it. You look at this pen over here. Can't see it. That classic bit. Remember when <laughs> Laurel and Hardy would do that, where one of them could see the magic eye and the other one couldn't? So dumb. I don't know. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 18. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.